Well, Ruth, happy birthday again. You gave me a goal to live for. To hear those two statements made at the same time, happy 96th birthday, stand up. <laughs> Way to go, lady. You can still do it. That's great. Uh, writers and speakers fret over the introduction to their article or their speech. Any of you who have written or, or given a speech or a sermon or a lesson realize that that's the, the introduction is crucial. And that's why James' introduction to his book is a bit shocking. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Really? I don't know what you've been smoking, James, but I'd like to have some of it. I mean, who counts it all joy when you encounter trials? Doesn't make sense. So James did get our attention. So why would he say, rejoice, count it joyful when pressure comes into your life? Well, James told us to Rejoice in trials because trials provide an opportunity for us to grow. Trials are part of what God uses to turn us into better people. And that's why he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its complete, its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James said the, the reason you rejoice in trials is it gives you an opportunity to become a better person, to grow, to, to, to instill health into your being. Now, when he says trials, he says a variety of trials. And that's what that word, uh, trials of various kinds. And so trials take many different forms, but I believe we can reduce it to, to generalize it into two general kinds of trials. There's a kind of trial that goes with the, the great cataclysmic thing. Tom talked about being announced that he had cancer. That's a huge, that's a big kind of a trial. Okay, we think of the Christians this morning in Ukraine and Ethiopia and Afghanistan and in China. I remember sitting around a table with a group of Chinese pastors and, and the, uh, my translator was helping me participate in that congregation. They were talking about how many times they'd been arrested. And two of them were talking about how they had just been beaten by the police recently. That's a kind of trial that most of us really, maybe a couple times in our whole life. I'm going to be 80 years old in a couple months. I can count two times when I would say I had that kind of cataclysmic trial. Our dear Bramers are wrestling with one of those right now. We're praying for them, their dear daughter in an automobile accident, it's it just granddaughter, excuse me. You're not old enough to have grandchildren. But anyway, uh, upside down, cataclysmic kind, of, that kind of a trial. But then there's a kind of trial that we face and struggle with every day. The kind of trials that we wrestle with temptation when we want to do what we know we shouldn't do. That's a trial. That's a pressure in life. In chapter 2, James talks about the trials that come with relationships and how we use people and how we measure people. And that whole chapter talks about the danger of, 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 of accepting people primarily because of what they can do for us. That's a huge temptation. 
And, and, and so there are trials and how we deal with people and how we relate to people. Chapter 3 talks about this whole business of control, and, and, and we can't control the tongue. And that's a struggle. I don't know if you struggle with that. Sure you do. The little white lie, the gossip. This week I was talking to somebody on the phone, and, and we were talking about a person who did something, made a mess, and, and that needs to be cleaned up, a, a relational mess. And the person said, well, we need to do more than just clean this. This person has a history of that. And I was just thinking of my next response when two things happened. The first thing that happened was that Hebrew word mitlachamim, which I have trained myself to say. Mitlachamim. It means tasty morsel. And Proverbs 18.8 says, the words of a gossip are mitlachim. Mitlachamim. They're like a tasty morsel. It's like a jelly donut. It says it goes down into the middle of your belly, which, again, it's a proverb. What he's saying is these words of a gossip sound so good, and they go right down into the center of our soul. So don't listen. It's like a jelly donut. I probably shouldn't eat that, but oh, it tastes so good. So I, I thought, and, and at that moment, that same moment, the second thing happened. My friend said, we should probably stop this conversation right here because it's going to go in a place we don't want to go. And I said, thank you, my friend. You just saved me from getting into a trial. Does that make sense? So that's the, James is talking about the, the use of the tongue in so many different ways, the pressure of not doing those kinds of things. Chapter uh, uh, <coughs> four, he talks about envy and strife and bad relationships and resenting people and, and disliking people and fighting with people and harboring those bitter feelings that we have and, and all those kinds of things. There's a trial. It's a trial. Chapter 5, he talks about a perspective when, when the world seems upside down and we're saying, Lord, how come you don't fix this? And why don't you make this right? So those two kinds of trials, some James said, when they come, you need to process them by faith. But every day, over and over and over again, as we live out our life, we're faced with trials. Trials of many kinds. So when James is talking about trials, they count it all joy when you encounter various kinds of pressure in your life, whether they're the huge ones or the small ones. Why do we count it all joy when we encounter various trials? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, how do trials test our faith? Well, I thought about that. And, you know, just as there are, generally speaking, two kinds of trials that we deal with, there are two kinds of faith. When I have that big cataclysmic thing, that's a kind of a faith that I have to Believe in God. Do I really believe this stuff? That's the, the sort of the more metaphysical thing. That's the kind of faith we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That's that kind of astronomical faith, that kind of faith that says when I have a cataclysmic thing in my life and I say, God, how could you do this? I don't even believe that you exist. I'm wrestling. How could a good God do this? 
How could a God of love do this? How could a God who's all-powerful allow this to happen? How is a God who is omniscient, knows all things? Don't you know what this is doing to my life? And that's that kind of metaphysical faith that, that deals with stuff we don't understand. And we need to have that for those huge events. When we're on our face before God saying, I'm just even wrestling with how you could do that. If you've been there, you understand that. But too many of us relegate faith to those kinds of events. To those kinds of trials. But there's another kind of faith. We go back again to Hebrews. Just before what we just read in chapter 11, the end of chapter 10 says... My righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. In the one who, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, out of here. So there is the idea of Faith in God, the metaphysical, I believe that God created this stuff and God is this mysterious, great, powerful being. But I also have a faith system. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes by faith. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What God says is right, proper, good. The righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first, when I first accept Jesus, to the last, the end of my life. I live by faith. Just as, as it is written, Paul said, the righteous people will live by faith. So not only do we have this faith in God, this, this, this metaphysical belief that Hebrews 11 talks about. By faith, I understand that God created everything out of nothing. I understand that. But I also have this faith system called the faith walk, the faith. Because if I believe in God, I believe in the God of the Bible, I believe He is who He says He is, and if he is who he says he is, and I believe that, then he is not only my Savior, he's my Lord, he's my Master. He is God. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord, Jesus Christ. And he has given me a body of literature called the Scriptures that teach me how to live. It's the Ten Commandments. These are the things you shouldn't do. And many, many, many other things. We, these are the things you should do to have a beautiful, productive life, to live life as I've intended it. So, so that sense, the, the, the faith is it's my ethic. It's my ethic. Where do I get my ethics from? Here. As soon as I say the word Christian and attach that to my name, it says, this is my ethical standard. It comes out of here. I read it. I pray over it. I attempt to understand it, and I pray that God will give me the power to live by it. That's my ethic. A few years ago, I was putting together a course on, on the moral leadership, and, and I was wrestling with these terms, ethics, morals, and integrity. 
And a lot of the literature uses them as synonyms, but they're not. And we, we miss something. My ethic, my ethic is what I claim to believe. What I say I believe is right, wrong, good, bad, beautiful, ugly. My morality is my lived out sense of what's right and wrong, good and bad. And my ethic, my standard of living, what I claim to believe is right and wrong, what I claim to believe is good and bad, is dictated for me here. And so James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because it exercises your faith. It puts your faith under pressure. Do I really believe this? Is this really my ethic? See, if you want to know my, what my ethic is, ask me. If you want to know what my morality is, watch me. And if my ethics and my morals don't match, I have no integrity. Because integrity, I mean, the integer is a whole number. It's a wholeness, a solidness. That what I claim to believe is what I believe. And you say, well, okay, so you've got these two kinds of trials. You've got these two kinds of faith. Which does James, what's James dealing with here? Well, obviously, James believes that we should have that metaphysical faith that believes in God and believes in the higher order things. But you look at what James actually talks about. What he deals with is the mundane, everyday stuff of life. Over and over again. In fact, if you go to James chapter 2, uh, forgive me, James. I, I, I rephrased some of James chapter 2, verse 14. 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? I wrote, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have a Christian ethic but doesn't have Christian morals? Or you go down a little further. Someone may well say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without the deeds, I will show you my faith by my deeds. You could also say that. Someone will say, you claim to have a Christian ethic. I have Christian morals. You show me your ethic without the morals, I will show you my ethic by my morals. You see how the... It's almost a put up or shut up, is what James is saying. Don't keep telling people you have faith and then live as if you don't have faith. It's embarrassing. It should be embarrassing to you. It's embarrassing to the kingdom of God. Put up or shut up. That's not harsh. James is dealing with faith in the everyday, day after day, moment upon moment reality of living in life. Yes, he wants us to have faith in God, but he wants that faith to be lived out the hundreds of times during a day when we decide, what should I say? How should I relate to that person? Am I going to live my faith or not? Now, we must exercise faith in those big events when they come, but we also must exercise them in the day-to-day -day realities of life. And I don't know how about you, but it's those day-to-day -day realities of life that puts my faith under pressure. I said one time to some people, it's not the lions that drive people out of the jungle. It's the mosquitoes. <laughs> it's not the grizzly bears. It's the black flies. 
And James is saying, get the mosquitoes under control. That's what this book is about. Because every time you exercise that faith, it's like going into the gym. Every time you exercise that faith, it gets stronger. That's what he just said right here. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces, and, and this gets a little confusing, produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you can be perfect. Why did he interject that thing? He could have just easily said, uh, count it all joy when you count various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith makes you a better person. But he added that additional step. The testing of your faith produces endurance. It produces toughness. It produces a, an ability. It builds the strength of your faith. It builds the strength of your character. Hupamane, strength. And let that strength have its perfect result, which says, I hang in there. Luke, uh, Jesus said in, uh, in, in Luke, uh, Luke 8 and also Matthew 13, uh, this thing, he, remember the parable of the sower sowed the seeds and, and the plants came up and there were different plants and some lasted a bit and, and, and then faded out and, and the last, remember that parable? Well, he says of one of those plants that grew up from the seeds, he said, those on rocky ground, are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. I like that message. But they have no root. They have no endurance. They believe for a while, but in a time of trial, same word James used here, in a time of trial, they fall away. And so James says the best chance you have in when the big one comes is that you have developed faith in your daily practice. And you have a strong faith. You have staying power. You have hupamane. You have strong endurance. And that strong endurance, he said, will produce something. So he said the reason we rejoice in trials is because they provide opportunity to grow. And then he tells us that trials provide opportunity to grow because they force us to test our faith. That's verses 3 and 4 of James chapter 1. It forces us to, do I really believe this or not? Am I going to live this way or not? Yeah, I claim to believe it. I claim to be a Christian. I claim to follow the Scriptures. I claim to have this ethic. But when you see my morality, you say I have no integrity. You see, if we're going to do business together, I might say to you, you want to do business with me? Yeah. Let me tell you something. I lie, cheat, and steal. Oh, really? Yep. What have I just given you when I said I lie, cheat, and steal? my ethic. So we do business for a year. I never lied, I never cheated, and I never stole. So you come back to me after the year and say, you've got a lousy ethic, but you've got a great morality. You've got no integrity. If your ethic says you lie, cheat, and steal, then lie, cheat, and steal so you have integrity. Now, isn't it better to go the other way? And you say to somebody, I am a Christian. In saying that, you have said, I have a clearly defined ethic, and you should be able to understand that I don't lie, cheat, and steal, or a lot of other things, and that I do some really good things, because my ethic says not only do I not do the bad things, but I aggressively pursue the good things. That's my ethic. Now, as you observe my life, and you see my ethic played out, my morals... 
you can determine if I have integrity. And what James is saying, don't say you have faith and you have no deeds. That's an integrity issue. If you're going to claim it, live it. And I mean this literally for God's sake. If you're not going to live it, don't claim it. There are too many of those running around. We don't need any more. This church, I look at you people. Hey, what a great bunch of folks. You look so pious out there. <laughs> you look at me and say, you're kind of pious up there. Preacher. Not as good as you think. <laughs> I wrestle too. Driving in a car one day. Guy cut me off. I yelled a name at him. I probably shouldn't have yelled. And this voice came and says, what did you say? Well, I forgot I was on the phone with Jeanette on the car phone. (laughs) (laughs) It happens. It happens. But the beautiful thing about James, and the beautiful thing about God, we can confess our sin, just as Kathy showed us this morning. And he forgives our sin. So don't give up. That's the staying power. I'm tested. I, my, my faith is tested with this thing, and, and I failed. And what am I going to do now? You're going to confess it. You're going to get up on your, hand, on your hind legs and move down the road. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials because it is what God uses to develop you into a better person. James described that faith applied to trials helps transform us into a marvelous person. Look at verse 4. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. That's the aspirational goal. God is using these pressures in your life, the big ones and the everyday ones, to force you to ask that question, do I really believe this or not? And every time you say yes, more strength, more strength, more building. And the goal, what we're trying to, what we're moving toward, so that you may be mature and complete. I remember one of David's favorite terms was that word telios. I've heard him say a few times, complete, finished. Not lacking in anything. They say, I never met a person like that. Well, me either. That's an aspirational goal. But James had seen someone like that. His older brother named Jesus. Perfect. Complete. Not lacking in anything. James says, I've seen that. That's a beautiful picture. And I believe James would say, my heart wants to be like my brother Jesus. To be what we call Christ-like. And what James is saying, we rejoice in trials because when we wrestle with them and we come through, God says, I'm making you just a little bit more like my son. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's why we rejoice in trials, because it's what God uses 
to shape us, to form us, to make us better than not bad. It's not just that I don't want to do bad things. That's not this ethic. This ethic isn't just about keeping us from doing bad things. It does do that. That's what it's about. Don't do this, don't do that. In fact, some people believe that God created humans, washed them for a few years, made a list of everything we like to do, and said, you can't do that. But that's not the picture. That's not the picture. He said, I don't want you to do those things because they will destroy you. They'll destroy your life. They'll destroy your family. They'll destroy your marriage. They'll destroy your reputation. They'll destroy your health. That's why I have these things that you shouldn't do. But far, far, far more than the list of things we shouldn't do are the, things, the, the list of things we should do to turn us into these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people that God created us to be. To get rid of the envy, the jealousy, the inability to control our tongue, all these things that James talks about. Throughout the book, he's dealing with the nyet, 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 nyet stuff of life. The mosquitoes, the black flies. Because that's where the battle is won or lost, isn't it? And then a third thing, we said... We rejoice in trials because they provide opportunity to grow. And trials provide opportunity to grow because they force us to test our faith. And third, trials provide opportunity to grow because they force us to ask for wisdom. Now, what he said in verse 4 is that properly responding to these daily things in life, you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God, the giving God, the God who gives, who gives generously and without finding fault, and it will be given to you. When you ask God for wisdom, he will never say what? You ask him for that again? You were you just here yesterday asking for that? How much of that stuff you want? No, no, no. No, God says, thank you for asking. I can't give you enough of this. I am the giving God. I give generously. I will never scold you. I will never, literally, the word is humiliate you for coming and asking for more wisdom. Now, when I was working on this particular point, I was riding my bicycle. And I know, what does that mean? Ask for faith. And I thought, well, you know, does that mean if I just ask, I get it? Seems to say that. And I think, and that could be. I mean, God, God can do that. But as I'm riding my bicycle, I'm riding my bicycle so that I can ride with my son. He's a much stronger rider. So I ride to get in shape. Now, I could sit at home eating eclairs and pray that God would put me in shape. All right? You say, well, you look like that. No. You know better than that. Now, should I not pray that I will be a, a healthy person? Yeah, I should pray that. But when James, James talks about ask God for wisdom, he was not the first sage, the first wise person. And by the way, James has been called the New Testament book of Proverbs. James very much reflects the book of Proverbs and that wisdom literature. But let me read something to you. Uh, there's another place in Proverbs that it tells us we should uh, ask for faith. Uh, pardon me, ask for wisdom. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all men generously and it will be given to him. And, and what he says here is the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Yeah, the Lord gives wisdom. So we should ask him for it. But let me read what he said before he said the Lord gives wisdom. He said, my son, 
if you accept my words and if you store up my commandments within you, turning your ear, listening very carefully to wisdom and applying your heart, applying your heart to understanding. Again, if you call out for insight, if you cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. Yeah, the Lord gives wisdom to those who search for it, who listen for it. Those who cultivate it and develop and develop that wisdom through experience of saying, I have applied my faith to my life. When I want to hear that bit of gossip or share that bit of gossip, I think mitlachamim, jelly donut. Sure would taste good. But it's sure going to give me indigestion. So I'm not going to listen to that. And as much as I want to share this with you, I'm not going to. And when you offend me, and I want to harbor that, no. James forces, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And when I'm wrestling with that deep sorrow or that overwhelming temptation, and I come back to this, count it all joy when you encounter that deep sorrow, that overwhelming temptation. Because here is an opportunity for you to say to yourself, am I the real deal or am I just talking about this? This is my ethic. Will my morality match my ethic? And when the struggle gets so overwhelming and I don't know what to do, James says, Ask God for wisdom and get involved in the process of developing wisdom. Ask God, show me, O oh Lord. Show me what I should do. And wisdom plays two parts. I'm almost done here. Wisdom plays two parts. One part is the question of why. Very carefully asked. If we start trying to figure out why all the bad things in the world happen, we'll drive ourselves crazy. But I ask, Lord, did I contribute to this difficulty? Is this person treating me this way because of how I have treated that person? Lord, I need wisdom to live because a lot of the stuff I do creates problems. I create my own trials. A few years ago, I had a, a mommy bring her college freshman to my office. He had flunked my New Testament course. And how dare I flunk her baby boy, this brilliant young man. I pulled out... I kept copies of his exams and his papers and showed them to her, and she discovered why. I said, ma'am, I don't give grades. I keep records. He flunked. And then because it was a Bible course, he pulled the theological thing. It must have been God's will that I flunk. And I said, buddy, you didn't flunk because it was God's will. You flunked because you're a lazy slug. And if you don't get over it, you've got to flunk out of this school. How much of our own trials are of our own doing? So the first way of wisdom is saying, am I living my life in a way that creates my own issues? 
And the second way we use wisdom is, Lord, what should I do? How should I respond to this? What's the best way? Not just to not do the bad, but to put some good in so that I am growing. I am becoming a better person. And the people around me are becoming better people. The Christian life isn't about just not being bad. The Christian life is about being, what did he say? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, trials of various kinds, knowing that this testing of your faith, your faith system, your faith walk, will produce endurance, staying power, conviction, and let that conviction, that staying power, go all the way through the trial so that you will be one step closer, being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.